Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus 20, or some of you are already there in Exodus 19, but flip over to Exodus 20, and that'll be our text, just the first couple of verses there, and then I'm going to swing over to Deuteronomy 5 afterwards and read verses 1 through 6. So we're starting our Ten Commandments series, and our message today is called Father and Son, which will make sense as we go, but let's go ahead and read our text. Exodus 20, 1 through 2. These are the words of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if you want to flip to Deuteronomy 5, we'll read 1 through 6. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all, all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, our Father and our gracious God, we are uh, your people, and we are gathered here as your church, your ecclesia, called out of darkness, and into your glorious life. We are grateful to you that we share in the Trinitarian life, chosen by the Father, forgiven in the Son, and empowered by the Spirit. Help us today to understand your word so that we might be equipped by your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, today we're starting our new series on the Ten Commandments, and Lord willing, it'll be a 12-week series in total. Today will be more of a, you might call a historical analysis of the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments, sort of a 30,000-foot view as well. And the very last week, after we look at each of the Ten Commandments each week in succession, uh, we will consider the relationship of the law and the gospel, which is very much obfuscated in modern evangelicalism, but nonetheless needs more clarity. So that'll just give you an idea where I intend to go with the series, Lord willing. Now, I've, I've wanted to cover the Ten Commandments for many, many years, um, even while pastoring in Michigan. It just never happened, and, but here we are, so I'm kind of just personally excited about it. So <laughs> I'm glad to finally have the opportunity. Now, oftentimes called the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, we know from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 28, that God called them the Ten Words. But this ten, these Ten Words serve as a concise expression of what is called the moral law of God. It's a concise expression of what is called the moral law of God. And this, of course, is not without debate. What exactly is the relationship of the Christian to the Ten Commandments? That is a question. Are we supposed to obey them since we're under the administration of the New Covenant? There's another question. Do all of them apply today? something to consider. Do all apply equally today? Are some commandments more applicable today and some aren't? 
That's another question we need to discover. Do only some apply? What about the civil magistrate? Is he to enforce and regulate crimes against the Ten Commandments? That is a question we will look at as well, and I hope to answer those as we go. Now, the Ten Commandments, we need to know, serve as a revelation of the character of God. It's a revelation of the character of God. The law, we know, exposes sin. It restrains the unruly. It's meant to. Uh, dating all the way back to Genesis 9-6. If someone sheds the blood of another human, that human's blood will be shed as a form of justice. In other words, sort of an early understanding of capital punishment for murder. We also know that the law acts as a light guiding our path. We need to know what the standard of God is, what God requires, so that we can walk accordingly. So as such, we should be careful, especially careful and extra careful, and paying attention to what the commands actually say. But to assume that these commandments are burdensome or over-exaggerated, you've heard it probably before, many churches will look at this and say, boy, God was super harsh in the Old Testament. Can't believe he would do that. Thankfully, we're in the New Testament, and, and meek and mild Jesus is what we have. You've heard that perhaps before I have. But to assume that they're over-exaggerated or burdensome, and thus we shouldn't be worried about them, is to assume far too much. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe in sola scriptura, the great Reformation truth that Scripture alone is our authority, and it is our final arbiter for truth. We don't go to the Vatican, to the man with a funny hat. We go to the Word of God. But we also believe in tota scriptura, meaning that all of Scripture... All of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for life and doctrine. So the commandments, we know, contain imperatives. These are things that we're supposed to do or things that we're not supposed to do. There are declarations. Think of those as warnings, like in the dashboard of your car when something is going wrong. They serve as declarations and warnings to us. There are also promises contained in the Ten Commandments. There are promises, there are blessings that we incur because of obedience. And since it reveals the character of God, you better believe that we are obligated to obey them. But the law, of course, is falling on hard times today. In our modern antinomian evangelical churches, the law is really not really considered to be anything important. But it's not really, and one of the things you'll hear is, well, it's super restrictive. I, I like to free myself up to obey God. I, I worship Jesus my way. Well, that's, that's very bad thinking. <laughs> you don't get to worship Jesus your way because your way could be very much um, anti-biblical or anti-scriptural. The law isn't merely a restrictive thing. Covenant law is a liberty thing. The Bible tells us that sin is the violation or the transgression of the law of God. Uh, sin is something that violates God's standards. But obedience sort of serves in the opposite direction. Obedience looks like keeping the law of God. Both things, you should know, are implied in the ten words. Obedience and disobedience. Both things are there in the ten words, the ten commandments. Let me put it another way. The ten commandments don't merely describe the things that we're not supposed to do. Rather, they describe a way of life for a people and a social order and God says when obedience to his law command takes, takes root 
and, 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 and we understand it and we obey it, human flourishing comes right alongside of it. You don't have to look for five minutes around at what's going on in the world right now and realize we have veered significantly off into the ditch of human autonomy and we have forsaken the commandments of God. You don't, you don't need but 30 seconds to look at the world and you can come to that conclusion. So let's look at our text and then we'll go from there. Exodus chapter 20. Here in Exodus 20, 1 through 2, we read this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now in the ancient world, whenever covenants were cut between two parties, there was always a pattern to it. There was always a general outline to it. You may remember when Abraham, God covenanted with Abraham, Abraham was put to sleep and he had this dream and animals were cut in half and split and God walked through them. That was a covenant ceremony. And what God was doing was saying, if I fail to fulfill this promise, may I be sliced in half as well. God was basically putting it all on him. Now, th this sort of covenant idea, though, happens here in the Ten Commandments as well. I don't have time to get into every single detail, by the way. I have done so elsewhere um, in the Politics and Religion series that we just republished. It's, I preached it in Michigan. Um, there's a sermon on that. It goes into greater detail. But I do kind of want to summarize this understanding of covenant so that we can see how they connect to the ancient, tradi ancient um, traditions. Think of it historically like this. Whenever a conquering nation defeated another nation in war, the conquering nation, which is often called the suzerain, uh, the suzerain, S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, the suzerain, they would covenant, that is, they would offer up a legally binding treaty to the conquered nation. The conquered nation would be the vassal state, V-A-S-S-A-L. So suzerain, vassal, conquering nation, the ones who were conquered. And in that treaty, they would lay out certain stipulations for the newfound relationship. The Hittites did this, ancient Mesopotamia, they all sort of followed this pattern. And in my view, they stole it from God. <laughs> they understood how covenant treaties work. Now, the Ten Commandments were essentially this covenant summary of the newfound relationship. So keep in mind that God wrote with his finger two tablets of stone. And the reason there were two is because there was one copy for each party. There was a copy for the suzerain. There was a copy for the vassal, the, the, the conquered nation. And you might remember that they were eventually placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where they were stored along with Aaron's staff, um, and you had God being, of course, present in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle first, and then the, temp the temple. But those, those stone tablets were placed in there as a covenant reminder. God is, Yahweh is the conqueror. Israel is the conquered. This is the covenant relationship. This is how the relationship is supposed to function. Also, <laughs> remember the, the fun story of Exodus 32. Moses actually destroyed the first set of tablets. If you remember, he came down off the mountain and saw that Israel was worshiping a golden calf. They called it Yahweh. They were breaking the commandment that God was giving to them in that moment. And Moses, in a fit of rage, threw them and broke them. So that was the first set. 
Moses had to write the second set. Now, the covenant model has five points. And if you look in your bulletins, by the way, you can see that we, we uh, mimic those covenants in our worship and our liturgy for a very specific reason. The first one is transcendence. That's where God takes hold of us. God takes hold of us. Um, God is the sovereign creator God. He made all things and he sustains all things. And that's what we learn here at the first part of the passage, that God is the covenant God. So that's the first part, transcendence. God takes hold of us. And the second part is what we call hierarchy. Um, we, we call it here in the bulletin where we wholly depend on Christ. Um, but what we're getting at is the hierarchy in the relationship of the covenant, there was a, a essentially a hierarchical system of law enforcement. So for us, we need Jesus. So Jesus is the enforcer of the covenant, you might say. He is the lamb who was slain with the, from the foundations of the earth. The third aspect of the covenant is ethics. For us, we hear God's law word. We want to hear and obey God's law. So that's why we do what we do on Sundays and we go to God and his word and we hear from him. But we also know that ethics are simply the laws and the terms of the covenant. You know, if you're going to obey God, you need to know the, the terms of the covenant agreement. What, what are the terms and conditions? You know, can I come to Christ and still have various addictions, whether it's on the computer or in, in your bloodstream? <laughs> you know, it, when I come to Christ, am I allowed to talk that way to my wife or my husband? When I come to Christ, what are the stipulations of the covenant? We need to know what God says. That's why we have the ethics of the law of God. The fourth is what we call oaths, the blessing or curses of God's law enforcement. Or for us now, we remember and renew covenant with God um, through communion. And we sing the doxology as a reminder that we are covenanted people with God. So, but for the oaths, just know that there are blessings and curses that were outlined in God's law. If you do this, then this will happen. God spelled that out for us. And then lastly, the fifth point, succession, not secession, which I'm all in favor of, but succession is the covenantal inheritance from one generation to the next, the future of the relationship. What is the covenant for? And for us, we have a benediction where we are commissioned for dominion. So that's why we structure our gathering the way we do, because it reflects these covenants that we, that we see in Scripture. Now back to the Bible here in verse, verse 1. Here in verse 1, it is God who invokes the covenant. So to invoke a covenant is to speak. And it is God who does so. He speaks these words in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the household of slavery, out of the house of bondage. Now as mentioned, this is point one of the covenant, transcendence. God is the sovereign in the relationship. God is the suzerain. He's the conquering nation or party in this relationship. He is the Lord God. He is the self-existent, fully self-conscious, absolute personality. He is the king. And there, if there ever was a transcendent, all-powerful king who conquers and loves and serves, it is the Lord God. And we know that his name is Yahweh. Yahweh. The relationship is initiated by Yahweh. God chose Israel, not the other way around. Which may be, by the way, what Jesus had in mind when he said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That's covenantal language. 
The context of Yahweh's relationship with Israel, you need to know, is marked by grace. The context, the entire context of this scene at Mount Sinai is marked by grace. Keep in mind that he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Okay, remember in the beginning of Exodus, we know that God heard their cries. Now, their cries weren't necessarily an act of repentance. Because remember, Moses goes in and he's not even in favor with the people. He's on the run anyway because he had killed and defended his brother. He killed the Egyptian man and it was found out. But he was on the run. But while on the run, God met him and said, you need to go back. My people are enslaved. God is the initiator. It's God's grace. And I don't want you to miss this point because um, antinomians all miss it. Dispensationalists miss it. E.P. Sanders calls this covenantal nomism. That is, the law of God is set forth in the context of the covenant. And the covenant is a treaty of grace. It's a treaty of grace. It was God who rescued Israel, who then gave them the treaty, the Torah, the path towards grace and obedience. And this is sort of a side note, a preview of coming attractions, I guess. Never drive a wedge between the law and the gospel. We'll get more into this in the final week. But suffice it to say now that the law and gospel go together. They work in tandem. They're not enemies. There is no antithesis between the law and the gospel. You don't get to say, I'm a gospel person, not a law person. You're, at, you're both if you're a Christian. So to, in other words, to speak of one is to speak of the other, for they mutually imply each other in a harmonious fashion. But that'll be week 12. That'll be in the future. Now, keep in mind the context. Leading up to this moment, Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for three months. That was Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, what Aaron read. After a wildly successful and pretty wild rescue mission in general, Israel left Egypt in a trail of dust. God had won the battle against the Egyptian gods, bludgeoning them with plagues. You remember those stories. He brought them through the sea, the Red Sea. Remember Pharaoh's army was chasing them and they were panicked, but Moses led the way. They crossed the sea on dry land and the waters came back and killed Pharaoh and the army. By the way, that's a prefiguration of baptism, but that's for another day. So he brought them through the sea. They were in the wilderness. And what did God provide for them in the wilderness? Well, he provided them manna to eat and water to drink. He was providing for them. And the ungrateful Israelites could only think to complain. Ah, we had it better under Pharaoh's rule. Okay, by the way, that's what, that's what Christians are doing today with this lockdown nonsense. The nanny state loves us and wants to take care of us. Big Pharma loves us and wants to take care of us. It's the same nonsense that they're crying out. It's the same thing we have here in this text. Same idea. Freedom in, freedom in God is hard. So we should just be slaves of the state. But God had revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And now Yahweh would further unveil his plans to his newly fashioned priesthood among the nations. So just know that this is all of grace. It's always all of grace. God had rescued them, an act of grace. He had provided for them, an act of grace. And now he was giving them his covenant law as an act of grace. 
I am the Lord God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, it is interesting here. We learn this from chapter 19, that God is speaking on the third day of the month, and there are trumpet blasts, and there is smoke permeating the entire, uh, the entire mountain, the entire existence, and the, the, uh, all the experience. It's, it's an exhilarating revelation of His glory. Something to have behold. I, I would have loved to have seen it. In the midst of this awe-inspiring reality, God speaks the ten words. It's interesting, in, in, um, in church history, Clement of Alexandria made the connection that God spoke ten words before. We have the Ten Commandments here, the Ten Words, but actually it's not the first time that God spoke ten words. God had spoke ten words back in Genesis 1, and you remember the phrase, and God spoke. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said ten times in Genesis 1, God spoke. Here we have again ten words that God speaks. It's as if this... The, the ten new creative words are here all over again because God is essentially forming His new creation people again. So we should think about creation while we're reading this. Speaking of Moses, with God's self-revelation to Moses, when God revealed His name as Yahweh, it means His name means I am who I am. Um, one theologian rightly points out, and he observes that it can be in any tense, by the way. It could be, I will be who I was, or I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be. It could be in any of those tenses. But the point is, God, the Absolute One, transcends space and time. And as the all-powerful, self-existent One, He will do for Israel what she cannot do for herself. Now, to bring this sort of into where I'm taking us, Yahweh is a Father. Israel is a son. When you're reading the Ten Commandments, that's how you should be reading it. Yahweh is a father. Israel is a son. He is your God. He is their God. He is our God. Israel, rescued from slavery and death, has become a resurrected son. The first fruits of a new creation. The fact that God will go on and, and by the way, in the Ten Commandments, he uses verbs that are in the masculine singular of the second person. The fact that God does that tells us that God is speaking to a singular unit, a whole. If you read the King James, the thou, the these and thous are actually good. They tell us the first, second person plural issue. Peter Lightheart basically points out that God is speaking to a single man here. When he says... I brought you out of the land of slavery. He's talking to, in a singular fashion. You. God is essentially saying, you, man, I bought you from the slave to sin and death market. You, sir, are not to worship idols, to steal, to covet, to murder, to commit adultery, etc. You, sir, you are my son. That's what he's saying in the Ten Commandments. So I've called this message Father and Son for that very specific reason. It, back in Exodus 4, we find that God gives Moses certain instructions on what to say to Pharaoh. If you remember, he tells him what to say to Pharaoh. Moses struggles along. I can't, I'm not a great orator. 
Aaron's brought in to help with that. But the point is, God gives instructions. And he even goes so far as to say to Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, you make sure it's clear that Israel is his firstborn son. That's Exodus 4.22. Yahweh tells Pharaoh, through the mediation of Moses, let my son go that he may serve me. If Pharaoh will not, God says that he will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. Either let my son go, who's enslaved, or I will take your firstborn son. And Pharaoh, we know from the rest of the story, won't do it, so the deal is off the table. So God provides the Passover lamb. Israel, the firstborn son, is brought from death to life. It's a resurrection. And guess what happens to Pharaoh's son? Yahweh rescues his son. Yahweh kills Pharaoh's firstborn son. In other words, Yahweh is a warrior father. He is a warrior father. And now you fast forward to the context of Mount Sinai, and we have a father-son moment again. Much like what we see in the book of Proverbs, son, listen to my instructions, here is wisdom. There's this father-son talk. God had commanded Adam, remember in the garden then, now he commands another Adam, another son. And it's, if his son is going to be like his father, he's going to have to know how to act. And that is what the ten words are all about. How should God's son act? Now, I want to zoom out a bit. Though that's just the historical context. That's just sort of what that is. But I want to deal with some larger questions. What are the ten words exactly? How do they fit together? What's the context? And how does Jesus come into play? That's where we're going for the rest of our time. Now, the narrative in Exodus 19 that, that Aaron, led, Aaron read, leading up to the ten words, that narrative is meant to be a vivid expression of the holiness of God that induces reverence and fear in Israel. The, the, the mountain that's got smoke around it, the trumpet blasting. It's meant to be fear. It's a rather volatile situation. Israel, Israel was called as a son to draw near to God, but if you notice when Aaron was reading that passage, and maybe you were following along, if they came too close, even touching the mountain, what would happen? They would die. Don't even touch the mountain. Don't come too close or you die. That's the holiness of God. They would die instantaneously, not over 10 years. They would die immediately. They would drop dead. In order for Israel to understand the depths of God's grace and in order for them to see the necessity of the law word of God, she needs to have the fear of God placed inside of her heart, soul, and mind. That's what this scene is about. This isn't, oh, hey, what's up, God? What, do, what, are, you, what are you requiring of me? No, 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 no. This is holiness. This is um, a ferocious God in his glory who's come up close to sinners who have violated his law. See, when men, just sort of a side note here, when men or women or children lack a reverence for the holiness of God, they begin the path of humanism. When we lack a reverence for the holiness of God, we begin the path of humanism and autonomy. We get what we get now in America today. So in order, for, in order to obey the, the Father God that we have, in order to obey Him, fear must rule our hearts. And not fear in terms of sort of a, a 
a fear of, oh, I don't know what to think, but more of God is good and I'm not and I need to have that perspective. See, when fear rules our hearts, gratitude gives way to obedience. That's the context of the ten words. Which means that men are only free when their hearts are ruled by Father God. You are only free when your heart is ruled by Father God. If your heart is not ruled by Father God, it will be ruled by something else. And guess what? It will be slavery. James tells us that the law of God, the Torah, is the perfect law of liberty. Now, that's not a contradiction in terms. It's a law of liberty, and we need to understand it as such. It is law, and it is liberty. It's the same thing. People who are ruled by idols are people who are enslaved. So your life is not to be marked, he says, by blasphemy against God, by workaholism. We should, one day in seven, we should rest. It shouldn't be marked by vengeance or murder or thievery and dishonesty. That's, that's what slaves do. That's not what sons and daughters do. Father God is telling his children that freedom is not found in exploring the heart's desires. Freedom is found by becoming like dad. That's the Ten Commandments. Freedom is not found by you figuring it out yourself, by you just going along with your heart's desires. That's not what freedom is. Freedom is being more like Father God, like your dad, like Abba Father. See, the the family meeting that is Mount Sinai is meant to be a sit-down talk where the father urges his children to mature. When they become who God has made them to be, they are then and only then considered to be free. If you want to be sort of like this modern sort of a, I guess it's sort of a postmodern thing, but it really is rooted in the Enlightenment, but it's where I get to just explore who, who I am. Like, I'm just going to be me. A lot of the self-care language gets co-opted, and, and you need to just be who you are and explore yourself. And Yeah, you need to know who you are, but you need to know who you were made to be. You're not just figuring it out on your own. You need to go to God to figure out who, who he has made you to be. That's freedom. Now, when God revealed himself to Moses and then Israel here at Mount Sinai, God made it clear that he is the one true God, which means that it is his one law that must be obeyed. It's not, I'm going to pay obedience to the state, and maybe if I get around to obeying God, I'll, I'll obey God. What should mark every Christian today is an obedience to God and his law word. Everything has to be brought into submission to that. If we could get that right, which is what the Warrington Declaration was all about, if we can get that right, everything else will fall into play. Everything else will fall into play. To to give themselves to other gods is to give themselves to tyrannical rule. Same thing for us. Here we learn that God is one. That's an echo of the Shema, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We learn that God is one, and we also learn that his law is one. He's giving us a revelation of himself. In other words, God tells them how reality works, being the author of reality and all. So Yahweh is creator, and this is his covenant law. This is life, friends. This is life. So how should we understand the Ten Commandments so we take them seriously? Now, just so you know, counting to ten has been much debated. (laughs) Counting to ten. How do we count to ten here in this passage? 
This is sort of a preview of the next few weeks. We know that there are 10 words, there are 10 commandments, but you need to know that they have been much debated throughout church history. As far as the words themselves, we have 12 negative imperatives here. 12 negative imperatives. While two do not have any negative commands, negative impairments. The fourth command tells us to remember and honor, remember the Sabbath. And the fifth command tells us to honor our father and mother. It's, those commands are framed in a, in a positive way. It's, the fifth command isn't don't disrespect your parents. It's actually a positive command. Honor your father and mother. Now, counting to 10, St. Augustine, uh, fourth, around 4th, 5th century, he combined the command against images with the command against idolatry. And when he did that, in order to get the 10, he actually, there are, were two coveting commands at the end. So, you know, you, you get this, don't, don't, uh, don't covet your neighbor's house. And then there's another command, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or so on. Augustine viewed those as two commands. So he rolled earlier commands into one, and then there's two there. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, as well as the Lutherans, have followed Augustine in that. So modern Lutherans would hold to that view that there are actually two covenant, or excuse me, two do not covet commands. We also have two sets of two tables. Have you ever wondered how many were inscribed on each one? Well, church history has wondered the same thing. If we have two tablets, not iPads <laughs> or Kindles, children, stone tablets, we have two tablets. How many were on each one? Was there three on one and seven on the other? What about, that's what Augustine thought. St. Augustine thought there were three on one tablet and seven on the other. Perhaps it's four and six. Maybe the first four were written on the first tablet and then the, the other six were written on the second. That's actually what Origen believed. Many said five and five, or some have even audaciously suggested that there were 10 on each. It was just repeated. Now, I tend to lean towards a five and five. I think it makes sense in a various context. I think five were written on the one tablet, five were written on the other. That's just kind of, most people think that aside from Catholics and Lutherans. As far as the reform tradition goes, the Ten Commandments are this, no other gods, that's one, no images, that's two. Number three is don't take God's name in vain. Number four is remember the Sabbath. Number five is honor your father and your mother. Number six, do not kill, right, do not murder. Seven is do not commit adultery. Eight is do not steal. Nine is do not bear false witness. And ten is do not covet. So that's how the Reformed tradition kind of put them together. Again, others have debated and put them differently. And, and by the way, Deuteronomy 5 says the same thing. However, Deuteronomy 5 has a much larger preface before the first commandment. And the explanation surrounding the Sabbath is actually longer and it's different. And here's the reason why. Keep in mind that Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to the next generation that was going into the land of promise. Exodus is the first generation receiving it at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy is the second generation who is outside of the Jordan ready to go and invade and take the land. So that's the difference between the two. Here's the flow of thought. The flow of thought goes like this. Because Yahweh purchased his son, his son shouldn't have any other gods. 
his son, based on that reality, should never put any gods before Yahweh. That is, as his children, we shouldn't have any gods, both tangible and intangible, before his face. After this, we see that God puts some context into the next four. God is jealous for his covenant, for his covenant plan for his son. Therefore, the son shouldn't bow to putrid, graven images. Yahweh is a just father, a God of justice and righteousness. So don't take his name lightly. Children, we shouldn't take God's name lightly. We shouldn't invoke the name of God when we're just screwing around with our words. When we're just saying things and not thinking reverently about God, we shouldn't do that. More on that in a couple more weeks. Um, So don't take his name lightly because God is a God of justice. He will bring recompense. We also know that Yahweh, um, Father God, keeps Sabbath. So therefore, the Son is supposed to keep Sabbath. So if you want to live long in the land, honor your parents. This is part of the covenantal call. So the rest of the commandments, though, have no other explanations like this. Lightheart points out a few interesting things. Yahweh appears eight times in the first five words, but not, in all, not at all in the second set of five. In Hebrew, the first five commandments contain 145 words. The second five only have 26. Think of it this way. Interesting, in the Hebrew language, the sixth, seventh, and eighth commands only have two words in Hebrew. Literally, it says, not kill, not adultery, not steal. The number five, we know that, why is it it five and five? Think about the number five in biblical numerology. In Exodus 13, 18, we know that five is a military number. So, remember, Yahweh is a warrior father. That's how we should read this. And, of course, kids, hold up your hands for me real quick. Both hands, hold them high. Adults too, okay? How many fingers do you have on your hands? Unless you lost one because of a rabid dog or something. Five on each hand, right? Five and five. The most basic of human experience, you look and you have five fingers. Five and five is ten. Now, know this too. The temple had two sets of five lampstands. We know that from 1 Kings 7. It also had 10 tables of showbread in two rows of five. That's from 2 Chronicles 4. In the courtyard of the tabernacle and the temple, later the temple, we see in 1 Kings 7 that there are 10 water stands, and there are 10 water stands in two rows of five that were lined up with the temple. Now, to many people, that's just a whoop-de-doo. Five and five, five and five, five and five. But what is God telling us? Here's how what we're supposed to be thinking. Yahweh's word moves from the inner sanctuary, which is where those two fives are, the covenant of God. It moves from the sanctuary out into, through the sanctuary, out into the outer part of the temple. And that word is supposed to go out into the world. So God's law is supposed to flow out of the church and bless the world. That's how we're supposed to understand the temple. The five and five in the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is coming in out of the Holy of Holies where you have the five, table, the five and five, both of the lampstands and the showbread that were put in there. 
going outside the temple into the, uh, um, the outer area where you have the five sets of water, the two sets of five water, it's all supposed to tell us that the law goes to the nations. That's what Isaiah 2 prophesies. That's what we have several times in Scripture. Um, Lightheart writes this. He says, quote, The Torah is a threshing ox providing bread. It's a ferocious lion that tears us and God's enemies to pieces. Torah, the law, offers soaring vistas like an eagle in flight and makes us truly, um, uh, truly human. Torah is good, but it's not safe. In the liturgy, in our worship, you come within range of this word, this cherubic word, a fiery sword that divides and consumes to make you a living sacrifice. And that's echoed, of course, in the book of Hebrews. Now, just a final couple of observations. We're running, running out of time. When you think about the ten words as a whole, the first set of five emphasizes the priestly nature of our relationship to God. Worship, images, Yahweh's name, the Sabbath, and honoring parents, all of it is focused in our worship and service of God. So kids, when you're obeying your parents and honoring your parents, you are in fact worshiping God. That's part of your worship. That's the first set of five is a covenantal liturgy, you might say. The second set of five can be called a royal or a kingly in that it focuses on politics and justice in the public square. The law pertains to the entirety of man's existence, his service of God, his service of neighbor. If you wanted to understand what Jesus meant about the greatest two commandments, love of God, love of neighbor, that's the fulfilling of both tables of the law both tables of the commandments. And lastly, I'll say um, that the ten words all fit together. The commandments all fit together. Not only do they collectively address every area of life, but they also imply the other. So think of it this way. When you obey the first word, no other gods, what will you inevitably do with the rest? You will follow them. Because what is the violation of every other command if it's not the usurpation of God? It's the worshiping of other gods. When you steal, you're worshiping another god. Right? When you forsake the Sabbath and you just grind it out day after day and you don't rest and you don't enjoy God's creation and you don't, you don't pause to worship Him and fellowship and spur one another on and so on, what happens? You're worshiping another god. So to, to obey the first is to obey the rest. Also, work backwards. What's the 10th command? Do not covet. What is coveting? It's something in your heart, right? Everything else has been external at this point, but what about what's in your heart? If you want to obey, it, the first obeys the rest, but at the 10th, you end up obeying the previous ones. So when the first is obeyed, what happens? We refuse to worship idols. We refuse to blaspheme God's name. Keeping the first means honoring the Sabbath, protecting life, honoring our parents, protecting our neighbor by being content with what we have, and so on. Um, Lightheart again, he says, quote, Idolatry is a kind of theft, a form of maritable, maritable, uh, marital, marital excuse me, infidelity to the divine husband, false witness about the living God. Every commandment is a window through which we view the whole Decalogue, end quote. I want to make sure we have the right footing for the rest of the series, and that's sort of, this is, pertains to the law's relationship to the gospel. 
as I said earlier, we'll explore that in the 12th week, in the last week. But for now, I want to make sure that we understand a few things. First, let's just bring this, bring this home here. We know that sin is the breaking and the violation of God's perfect law of liberty. We already know that. Sin, sin is when we try to have it our own way, when we try to honor our own law above God's and so on. Um, Genesis 3, 5, that's the same besetting sin over and over again when we try to know and determine and establish good and evil on our own terms. That's Genesis 3, 5. Because of that sin, we also second know that we need a Savior. The New Testament shouts from the rooftops that Jesus Christ is that Savior. But before He is our Savior, He is the perfect Israel Son. All of the themes we just talked about comes rushing forward in Jesus, Yahweh's Son. Christ is the law incarnate. Christ is the law personified. It is Christ who kept the law as the Word, as light, as bread. It is His Spirit that flows out of the temple into the rest of the world. It flows through us out into the rest of the world. The ten words are essentially a precursor to Jesus, Yahweh's perfect Son. So here in redemptive history, Yahweh had chosen Israel to be his son who is shaped and formed and conformed by and to the ten words. That was the point of the commandments. Israel, we know, is encumbered by sin and rebellion. They are humanity in Adam. But we need a new humanity in the second Adam, the eternal son, Jesus Christ. And this is where the gospel comes into play. It is here that Jesus shows us what sonship looks like. You want to be a good son and daughter of God? You need Jesus. You need to look to him. See, Jesus honors Yahweh by putting him first. He doesn't bow to images. He doesn't take his name in vain. Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath, even though he's accused of it. He doesn't disobey and besmirch his parents. In fact, Luke tells us very specifically that he honored his parents. Jesus doesn't murder, he doesn't commit adultery, he doesn't steal, lie, he doesn't covet. He is the perfect son that Israel was called to be, but couldn't be. And you see, there's this interesting correlation in Scripture between Eden. Eden, by the way, was a mountain. That's what Ezekiel tells us. The Garden of Eden was a mountain. There's a correlation between the Garden Mount of Eden, the mount that we call Sinai. But there's also one other mountain Pentecost in the book of Acts God returned guess what on the third month he returned on the third month again with the same pomp and circumstance that mountain is what we call Jerusalem rushing wind and tongues of fire appeared God poured out his spirit in a fresh way the law wasn't on stone tablets anymore they were written on the heart by the spirit and as as a renewed Israel whose older brother is Jesus, he brought us into this family. God sets us forth into the world to obey the Ten Commands, the Ten Words, and to the Great Commission, make the connection, to see to it that the rest of the world is brought underneath them as well. That's the Great Commission, to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. What is Christ commanded? The law of God. And it is here where creation and covenant Law and liberty, redemption and reward, all of it comes into focus, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Now, last question, and I promise we're done. Are the Ten Commandments supposed to be something that we follow? Is it something we're supposed to obey? Let me ask a different question. 
Are you supposed to follow Jesus? We are, right? We're supposed to follow Jesus. Jesus is the 10 words and we are in him. To obey the commands is to obey Jesus. To obey Jesus is to obey the commandments. In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So Yahweh is our father, friends, and we are his sons and daughters. And only because Jesus the son has brought us into the king's chambers. And now we have life. Let's pray. Father, you have been gracious all throughout history. We've jumped around a lot from Eden to Mount Sinai to Pentecost. And through all of it, you have been gracious and good and consistent. You have been holy and righteous and just. You have dealt with a wayward people, often encumbered by sin and rebellion. And God, we are thankful for your faithfulness. We are thankful for your love. And we are thankful for your law, God. And we want to see it fulfilled in obedience in all quarters of our nation, in our churches, in our state houses, Father, and even in D.C. We want to see a restoration, but we also know that before that we need re repentance. So God, we, are, we want to see repentance and revival and reformation, but Lord, we know it's in your hands. You are our Father, we are your children, and th thank you for your Son, Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen.